Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in. Are you? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fitz on Fantasy. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. You can find my written work and my fantasy rankings at thefootballgirl.com. Go over there and check out my buying guide series. Well, 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 they are actually playing football now. I guess the so-called offseason is pretty much over. Preseason football is in full swing. And my guest this week is going to be Michael Beller of The Athletic, one of my very best friends in the fantasy football media. Find him on Twitter, at mbeller. We're going to hit on a lot of different players and a lot of different topics. But first, let's talk about preseason for a minute. Uh, I actually attended a preseason game last week. I have a good friend who is a Green Bay Packers season ticket holder, and he asked if my son and I wanted to join him and his son for Packers Texans. And my son is 12. He inherited my Packer fandom, and I had not taken him up to Green Bay yet and was very anxious for him to see Lambeau Field. So it was a beautiful summer night, perfect weather. My friend has club-level seats, and one of the perks of that is that club-level Season ticket holders can take an elevator up to the roof and see the view from there, which is pretty remarkable. We happened to be up there when Dexter Williams picked up 20-plus yards on a screen pass, and though I understand why some people are excited about how good Dexter looked in that game, the screen pass was his biggest play, and it was so well set up that I probably could have gained 12 or 13 yards on it. Seeing it unfold from up high was pretty awesome. Uh, Anyway, preseason does reveal some important clues about what depth charts and uh, playing time are going to look like, but it also seems like preseason sets some traps for us with small sample variants tricking us into shifting our stances on some players, and maybe we were exactly right about those players in the first place. So, look, if you're listening to this fantasy football podcast You are probably the type of person who has a heightened sensitivity to all forms of NFL-related stimuli these days. You're ingesting all these news items, catching preseason highlights, or maybe even taping and rewatching multiple games. That's all great. I do it too, but here's a question. Would we really be any worse off in preparing for our fantasy drafts if we were subject to a complete NFL blackout at this time of year? I mean, let's say you knew about all the injuries and holdouts, but what if you went dark on all the other NFL news tidbits from August 1st through August 16th or 17th? Basically, from the Hall of Fame game through the end of the second full week of preseason games. Would you be at any significant disadvantage in fantasy drafts, or might it actually help? I'm going to find out, actually. A good friend of mine who plays in two of my home leagues and is actually my partner in another home league is currently entering the home stretch of a 15 day family road trip. Uh, my buddy and his family actually drove from Chicago to LA in a rented RV 
traveling Route 66 and making all the requisite tourist stops along the way. But I know my friend is right now being subject to a near-complete NFL news blackout. And I'm really anxious to see what sort of impact it has on his player valuations. We're getting together shortly after he gets back to have a few beers, talk about his trip, and map out a draft strategy for the league where we're partners. And it's going to be real interesting to see how his sensory deprivation on August NFL news affects his stances on various players. All right, let's get to it, guys. Let's get to the guest. Let's bring in Michael Beller of The Athletic. I'm now joined by my good friend Michael Beller of The Athletic, where he is a host and producer of various podcasts. Before that, he had been the lead fantasy guy and uh, really kind of a one-man show in the fantasy branch at SI.com, where we briefly worked together and did a podcast together. Find him on Twitter, at mbeller. Mr. Beller, how are you, buddy? Doing great, Fitz. Great to be uh, back with you in this forum. Something we used to do a lot. Now we uh, get to do it a couple of times a year, which is nice. I know, man. It's these uh, these cameo appearances after doing it weekly for a while. Uh, so let's talk about your recent job change and what you're doing now at The Athletic. Obviously, The Athletic is quickly becoming a juggernaut in the sports media, and I'm a subscriber myself. Frankly, I think it's kind of an ass- essential subscription for sports fans these days, given the depth of the coverage there. And uh, The Athletic also has an excellent fantasy team led by Nando DeFino. So how did you end up there at The Athletic? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. I agree uh, that it's an essential subscription. I hope uh, your listeners do as well. Uh, it was uh, it re- really sort of came about uh, almost by happenstance. Uh, another guy who you and I both know well in the industry, Derek Van Riper, had uh, been at Rotowire forever and started working there, uh, started working at the Athletic in February or so. And Derek and I went to Wisconsin together, uh, so we've known each other since our shared Madison and Rotowire days. Uh, he reached out to me. One thing led to another, and I ended up joining the team that he really leads, uh, focused on uh, podcasts in fantasy, both football and baseball. And that's awesome, man. And uh, Derek, DVR, as we call him, is a uh, great guy, great guy to be able to work with. And I know you've worked together before, so that's got to be a nice reunion for you. Um, Beller, before we jump into fantasy, I have to mention this to listeners you are the man of a thousand pools. I think that in <laughs> in circles of friends where everyone in the group is a big time sports fan, there's often one guy who sort of takes charge of running the various pools and leagues. And you seem to be that guy uh, in the crowds you run with. In 2017, you first roped me into the BSATs NFL pool, and now I can't imagine not having this pool in my life. So please explain to everyone what BSATs is all about, and if you wouldn't mind tacking on the extra points, could you also tell people about Up on Kicker Creek? I sure can, Fitz. I love that. I I am. I've always been that guy. I started my uh, first home fantasy league with my friends when we were in eighth grade, which would have been 1998. We are still going strong. We've got our draft coming up in a couple of weeks. And really going back to that, I've always been the guy uh, who has taken charge and run these pools because I want to participate in them. And so if I'm going to if I want to beat them anyways, I figure why not be the person who runs them? So BSATS is it's B-S-A-A-T-S. It's Beller's Super Awesome Against the Spread Pool. And the way it works is there are 32 of us in this pool. 
Each person gets assigned one team in the NFL at random. Uh, and then you have to pick that team's game against the spread every week. Doesn't mean you have to back them. If you have uh, the Packers, you don't have to back the Packers. You just have to pick their game against the spread. Uh, you probably would be taking, you know, for example, the Bears week one minus three and a half. I'm just saying that. I'm just putting that out there. But anyway, <laughs> you pick you pick your team's game and the standings look like just how they do in the NFL. So if you do have the Packers, you are in a division with the people who have the Bears, the Lions and the Vikings. And you all pick uh, all 16 games throughout the season. And then we advance to the playoffs and that works just like the NFL playoffs do. So there are four division winners in either conference and then two wild cards in the conferences as well. Those 12 people move on to the playoffs. They all get a little bit of, uh, of cash back for what they did during the regular season. And then they move on to the playoffs uh, where we have a completely different format. Uh, you're not just picking the one team's game. Obviously, some people are going to have their teams not be in the playoffs. So we change the format and go to just a pure against the spread picks uh, total once we get into the playoffs, giving a, a little bit of uh, home field advantage to the people who had better records during the regular season. Uh, we're now in our third year and really uh, loving it. And I love that all we have had very little turnover. So basically the 32 people who got in in 2017, most of them are still here in 2019. And I think that speaks to how popular of a pool it is. It is just an awesome pool. And uh, this year... You drew the Steelers. I drew the Cardinals. I'm pretty happy about my draft after getting the Dolphins last year and trying to get on the right side of so many big point spreads every week. How do you feel about trying to pick Steelers games every week? It's going to be fun. I mean, the thing I care about the most is just having a team that isn't boring, right? I mean, theoretically, it doesn't matter which team you get. Uh, you're you're picking against the spread every single week. So it's not like there's necessarily any huge benefit to having a good team or a bad team. Uh, I do like having a team that I think is interesting, which I do believe the Steelers are. Uh, and I think they're going to be a team that's relatively easy to get a read on. Obviously, uh, you know, no Antonio Brown, but the no Le'Veon Bell thing doesn't really matter. They didn't have him last year. So I think we're going to see a lot of uh, uh, continuity from this team uh, from last year to this year. And I think that'll make it easy to get a read on. And that really is the key in this pool. Having a team that you feel comfortable picking early in the season can make a huge difference. All right. Now, if people think this is a wild pool, you got to tell them about up on Kicker Creek. <laughs> so it, it's funny, actually, uh, we uh, we closed the door on up on Kicker Creek going into this season. Uh, it, it was six of us and we just decided that we'd had enough. But what it was was an all kicker league. Uh, it's called up on Kicker Creek because I am a huge fan of the band. And one of my very favorite songs by any band is up on Cripple Creek. So it just seemed to work out perfectly. Uh, we had six of us. We each had five guys. Technically, it was team kicker. Uh, so if someone got injured, you know, you weren't worried about, uh, you know, uh, like when Dan Bailey was on the Vikings and then he got hurt, you weren't worried about getting uh, sniped on the uh, Vikings kicker uh, on the on the waiver wire. It was just team kicker. Uh, and we started three of our five kickers every week. We awarded major bonuses uh, for yardage. We took away uh, points for every single missed kick, uh, except for 50-plus yard field goals. We did not uh, ding anyone for missing those. Uh, and we had a lot of fun with it. But ultimately, we've all got a ton of leagues, a ton of pools, getting a little bit older, and we all had to sacrifice one league. So we said goodbye to Up on Kicker Creek this season, but not before I rewrote the first verse uh, of Up on Cripple Creek with kicker-themed lyrics to <laughs> you say goodbye to the league. Talk about thumbing your nose at the band, the kicker crowds. I mean, <laughs> which is led, of course, by now your colleague at The Athletic, Jake Seeley. I mean, did you actually tell Jake about this league? If, you had t if he had known about this, he might have worked to ban, to block your hiring <laughs> before oh, he you knew came aboard. 
Yeah, he knew all about it. Uh, and Jake and I still uh, very good naturedly go back and forth on that. We have very different stances on the, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say the importance, but the uh, utility, I guess, of kickers in fantasy leagues. I, uh, I flirted with uh, getting rid of kickers in some leagues once upon a time, but uh, after a little bit more of a dive into it, I think that it's a uh, it's a fun position. It's a good position. The only thing you need to do instead of banning kickers, just no yardage bonuses uh, in regular leagues. And if you're going to do up on Kicker Creek, then you got to have yardage bonuses. But in regular <laughs> league, every field goal, three points. It makes the scoring much more predictable. It makes the scoring a lot less volatile. And I think that if you really want to focus your ire on one position being way too much of an outlier that can swing games without being really the focus of the fantasy game, you should focus on team defense and special teams. I think that's really where the problem is. As long as you tamp down the kicker scoring, everything's three points, extra points are one point. I don't think you're going to see too many games swung by the kicker. One last word on pools before we move on. Bellera and I are about to begin the second year of the Pentathlon, a grueling challenge put together by the aforementioned Derek Van Riper of uh, Roto-Wire that includes an of auction the league. That's of the athletic. Oh, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> forgetting about Derek's job change. Uh, the athletic. So this is a five-pronged league that includes a – Best ball league, an auction league, a conventional redraft league, a point spread contest, and a survivor pool. And boy, talk about an involved league. Uh, this one also includes, let's see, Scott Pianowski and Andy Behrens of Yahoo, uh, Elliot Christ of the Quant Edge, Jeff Erickson of Rotowire, uh, some other really sharp people. I don't know about you, Beller, but this might be the most involved and challenging league slash pool that I've ever been part of. Oh, yeah, me too. And it's super fun. I mean, I'm in all those sorts of leagues individually already, but to put them all together and, and make this whole uh, pentathlon idea out of it, I think is a ton of fun. I really enjoyed it last year. I'm happy that uh, Derek wanted to run it back again in year two. I think it's something that could take off if it gets a little bit of recognition. Um, and it's just it's just a lot of fun because, I mean, we're, we're all football fans first before we're fantasy players before we're necessarily fans of our teams we just love the sport and so I love I mean I'm consuming the games from all those angles from fantasy from survivor from against the spread so to put it all together is a ton of fun and I've got a crown to defend in that league not overall but I ran away with the against the spread part of the pentathlon last year so uh, hoping to be able to do that again in 2019. Oh you did man you crushed that part of the pool if I recall um yeah that and just for anyone who's curious you, it's scored rotisserie style, which means each of the various prongs of the pool is graded 12 through 1, 12 points for best, 1 point for worst, and uh, you get the corresponding number of points and high point total wins at the end. Who won it last year? Was it Pianowski? I think so. Or maybe did Vlad Sedler, did they win it? Oh, maybe it was I can't Vlad. remember. Yeah. I think it was one of the two of them, but I honestly can't remember who won the overall. It might have been Pianowski because he had like three awesome legs. Right. Yeah, I want to say it was him, although I, I think it was Vlad who was chasing him. But uh, All right, Beller, moving into fantasy at long last, you recently traveled to New York City to take part in one of the annual flex drafts hosted by our buddy Jake Seeley, mentioned earlier. Um, actually, Jake's now a colleague of yours, as we discussed. And um, let's talk about how the flex draft went for you, because I think your draft really sort of tipped your hand on a number of players and how you feel about them. Now, picking at 107, middle of the first round, you took Odell Beckham Jr., who was the very first wide receiver off the board. 
Now, it seems like DeAndre Hopkins and Devontae Adams are typically the first two wideouts taken in most drafts. You took OBJ ahead of both of those guys. Why is Beckham your wide receiver one? Yeah, he's uh, pretty comfortably my wide receiver one. He's also, I would take him ahead of a couple of the backs who went uh, before him. Um, look, I just think he's he's in a perfect spot, and I think we are going to uh, understand just how much he was being held back, especially the last couple of seasons, uh, by playing uh, not only with Eli Manning, a quarterback who clearly is uh, on, you know, not just the back nine of his career, but maybe the 18th hole, uh, and uh, and in, in an offense that just didn't necessarily have the juice that I think we're going to see in Cleveland this season. I mean, still, the fact that he was able to, you know, put up uh, 1,052 yards, 77 grabs, six touchdowns in 12 games on that Giants offense last year was pretty remarkable. I would say uh, if you, you know, if we made this a, a plus stat, right, like OPS plus or uh, normalized everything the way we do with everything in baseball, uh, that you Beckham's uh, per play production would have been among the best in the league. So now I think you take him out of that environment, you put him with a clearly ascending quarterback in uh, Baker Mayfield, you put the weapons around him, Jarvis Landry, Nick Chubb, David Njoku, and I think we're going to see him flourish as still the clear centerpiece of what is going to be, in my opinion, one of the three or five most explosive offenses in the NFL. I'm a tiny bit concerned about what the offensive line looks like, but as long as that doesn't completely submarine this offense, then I think we're going to see a truly special, you know, 1,500-yard, 15-16 touchdown season out of Odell this year. And that's kind of been his per-game production even with Eli, the, the basically close to 100 yards and a touchdown a game. Um, you're not at all worried about, I don't know, some of the, the injury history with him, the hamstring issues, the knee issues. Uh, you don't consider him an abnormally elevated injury risk? No, I'm I'm really not concerned about that. Uh, the you know the two years ago uh, the broken leg. I mean that's you know that that's a fluke thing. Um, and uh, you know, I've uh, been told by a lot of people, uh, injury experts, that uh, broken bones are are devastating injuries. But once they heal, they heal. They're not like uh, muscle strains or anything like that. Uh, soft tissue injuries where you risk re-injury. And once a bro- once a bone has uh, healed, it's good to go. Uh, last year, uh, yeah, he dealt with uh, the leg injuries toward the end of the season, but that was really always seen from him, right? I mean, uh, 2015, 2016, he played full years. 2014, missed a little bit of time at the beginning of the season, but then once he was back, he was back. So uh, I, I suppose he has a slightly higher than baseline injury risk uh, for an NFL player, but not uh, dramatically so, and certainly not anything where I'm concerned about given what the ceiling is now that he is part of this Cleveland offense playing with a guy who is going to not only uh, be able to get him the ball downfield in Baker Mayfield, but a guy who has that aggressive mindset, a head coach in Freddie Kitchens who has that aggressive mindset, and an offensive coordinator in Todd Monk, and all these guys want to be aggressive, push the ball down the field, go, go, go. I mean, I think we're going to see the Browns put up 40 points multiple times this year, and Beckham other than Baker, of course, is at the center of all of that. I really think we're just going to see a huge year out of him. Yeah, the skill skill position talent they have collected is just sick. And uh, it's kind of amazing that you can still get Odell in the second round in quite a few drafts. And I mean, if you start a draft with Odell as your second round pick, you got to feel pretty spectacular about how things are uh, starting for you in your drafts. Now, at 206, you took Todd Gurley, whose status has been the story of the offseason. What's your take on Gurley? And is 206 about as early as you'd consider taking him? Or would you even think about drafting him closer to the turn? 
Yeah, that's really about where I would take him. Um, I am not. I'm not sitting here saying 206 for Gurley was a steal. Um, I think it's an appropriate spot to get him. I am not aggressively fading him. Uh, and obviously, you know, you and I are sitting here on August 12th. Uh, maybe something happens over the next couple of weeks where by time I'm drafting some other teams, I am uh, a little bit uh, more bearish on him or not quite as bullish on him uh, as I-, I was last week when I was in this flex draft. But I just think that even if, you know, we've, we keep hearing this 65% of uh, running back touches number. And obviously that's a huge uh, drop from where he was last year. But even if that ends up being the case, 65% of backfield touches uh, is still going to have him, what, maybe seventh or eighth in the league. He's still going to be among the league leaders in backfield touches if that's where he's at. And then let's not forget that he's going to be getting those 65%. Uh, in what we expect to be one of the best offenses in the NFL. So I would not be taking him, uh, you know, last year he was the consensus number one overall pick. I think he's off there for a good reason this year. But if you look at the guys who went right before him in this draft, uh, Tyreek Hill, Mike Evans, Travis Kelsey, right after him, Antonio Brown, Dalvin Cook, Aaron Jones, I think that's a totally appropriate place. Uh, to take Todd Gurley. I think that he fits in right there. Uh, I would have taken Kelsey had he made it one more pick. I would have taken Kelsey over Gurley. Uh, But for me, the guys who came right after him, the two who I considered were Dalvin Cook and Aaron Jones. Um, And uh, I went away from Cook because of his, I think, more real injury concerns. Uh, We haven't seen a fully healthy year out of him. I went away from Aaron Jones as much as I do like him because I thought, A, there's a chance I can get him in the next round, and B, as confident as I am in him, uh, not quite ready to uh, fully take him over Gurley just yet because of what could be usage issues in Green Bay. So I wouldn't have a huge uh, argument against someone who took Cook or Jones over him, but it just felt like the right spot for Gurley. And if he does end up getting that 65% touch share, then I think we're going to see another strong RB1 season out of him. Yeah, I'm with you. That does feel like about the right spot to get him. And I don't know if it seems like if you are the two of us, like a lot of the listeners to this show, avid fantasy football owners who are in multiple leagues, like you owe it to yourself to get some exposure to Gurley just in case we're looking back on uh, the summer of 2019 and saying, my God, why was everyone so scared of Todd Gurley's knee issue? Um yeah, uh, and with some drafts still ahead, I think I need to get my first share of him because I haven't taken him yet. Um, I know, just always someone I like a little more, not that I'm necessarily running away from his situation, but I guess the one reservation is uh, you don't want to go through the season if he is one of these guys who's constantly on the injury report and every week you're having to go through the headache of reading the tea leaves and trying to discern his availability for the upcoming game. I mean, that would be the one thing that could really sour a Todd Gurley owner quickly if, uh, you know, you're waiting to play the Sunday at uh, noon Eastern game every week where you're waiting for that uh, active list to come out. And Well, especially since he's a West Coast team, so you're going to have to be making that decision a lot. And and he's out in L.A. not playing until 4 o'clock Eastern, and you've got to make that call beforehand. Uh, So there is – there is some risk there, but like, I mean, like, I like James Conner went a couple picks before him. Michael Thomas and Juju Smith-Schuster went a couple picks before him. I'm not reaching uh, ahead of those guys to take Todd Gurley. I think those guys all have much safer floors, but a guy just got to a point where, like, when I was comparing him against Cook, Aaron Jones, Antonio Brown, and this was before all the foot stuff, uh, Keenan Allen, it, it just felt like the right spot for Gurley. I didn't, I wasn't, uh, 
running to the board, throwing them up, and then laughing at everyone, laughing in everyone's face in my league. Oh, my God, I just got a huge steal. But it was a very easy choice. I will say the one guy who I considered and who I maybe would take ahead of him who I passed on was Nick Chubb, and that was largely driven by the fact that I had Odell with my first pick. Which makes perfect sense. I, I think you have to diversify a little at that point. And I, I think I have those two adjacent to each other with Chubb just ahead of Gurley in my rankings as well. Uh, now, you got two of the wide receivers I've been getting in a lot of drafts myself, Allen Robinson and Alshon Jeffrey. I talked about Robinson at great length with Matt Harmon last week, so let's talk about Alshon. It kind of seems like he's getting buried based on the too many mouths to feed arguments, and yeah, the Eagles do have some quality pass catchers, Zach Ertz, Deshaun Jackson, uh, some intriguing young guys in Dallas Goddard and Nelson Aguilar. But to me, Alshon is a wide receiver one-level talent who typically goes around wide receiver 30, which is exactly where you got him, wide receiver 30. Uh, is Jeffrey someone you've been actively targeting in early drafts, or is, is that just simply value presenting itself? He is someone who I've been drafting, and it's because of – I guess it's sort of – the answer is both. I have been actively targeting him, and it's because you can get him pretty reliably, like you said, at wide receiver 30. And I just cannot see any scenario in which he does not outperform wide receiver 30. Uh, he It might just be wide receiver 24 or 25. I'm not saying he's going to be a top 10 guy because of all those mouths to feed and the way that Philadelphia does maybe the best job in the league at getting the absolute most out of all their skill players. Uh, but, I mean, because of that, that, that same thinking should lead you to think that, I mean, look at what he did last year. 13 games, 843 yards, six touchdowns, 65 receptions. I mean, is there any way that he does worse than that on a per-game basis? I would be stunned if he didn't match those numbers per game. And, again, it's not those aren't going to be wide receiver one numbers, but – I mean, we're not going to be talking about Elshon Jeffrey as a guy who falls out of the top 30 wide receivers. So it's just such an easy profit pick. There's just no way that Elshon Jeffrey does not deliver on his ADP. He might hit that exactly, and he might. we might look back and say, all right, uh, he was fairly priced as wide receiver 30. He ended the season as wide receiver 28. But I think that is a worst-case scenario. And if he does you know, stay healthy all 16 games, if he does – get a little bit more of a role in the offense. If uh, Zach Gertz maybe uh, has his target share drop just a little bit, if he has a little bit more luck in the red zone, there are so many ifs that if if only one or two of them get checked, then suddenly he goes from an easy wide receiver 30 to an easy wide receiver 23 or 24. There's, there's just no risk with him and so much potential for profit that Alshon Jeffrey, I think, is an easy guy to like where you're getting him in any draft this year. It's a good point about the lack of risk there. I mean, some people might see injury risk there, but this dude did play a whole season with, what, a bum shoulder. Uh, he's tied to a good quarterback. He's tied to a really, really good offense. Um, I, I agree. It's just kind of amazing that he's uh, dropped as far as he has, and I really do think people are over, overly concerned about the too many mouths to feed thing. Before we move on, let me take a moment to tell you about bestfantasyfootballleague.com. The football season is coming up quickly, friends, and if you want to get into a fantasy league that's run the way you want it to be run, you need to check out bestfantasyfootballleague.com. What bestfantasyfootballleague.com does is provide public fantasy football money leagues, and they offer an incredibly wide variety of formats. They're redraft leagues, best ball leagues, dynasty startup leagues, weekly leagues. There are 10, 12, and 14 team leagues. 
They're both PBR leagues and non-PBR leagues, and there are also six different lineup styles, including a traditional format with no flex spots, a flex format, mini flex, super flex, and the Dynasty and Best Ball Leagues at bestfantasyfootballleague.com do not use kickers or defenses, unlike other sites. Entry fees range from $19.99 all the way up to $2,999. Bestfantasyfootballleague.com has been providing leagues for 19 years and is a proud member of the Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association. Hey, what are you waiting for? The season starts soon. Get in on the fun by heading over to bestfantasyfootballleague.com. Beller, you landed Matt Ryan as the QB9, and uh, maybe the QB9 part isn't so remarkable, but you got him in the 11th round of a 12-team draft. And man, just so late relative to some of the other quarterbacks. I mean, that was more than 40 picks after Baker Mayfield, uh, about half a round after Kyler Murray. Murray. Uh, Where do you rank Matty Ice, and were you shocked that he lasted so long? I wasn't shocked that he lasted so long just because of how these industry drafts typically go in one quarterback leagues. Uh, Listeners, you are probably not going to be able to get Matt Ryan in your home leagues where I got him. Uh, Typically, uh, regular civilian leagues, no offense, of course, are uh, a little bit more aggressive on the quarterback position. So I would expect him to go higher overall. Now, he still could be QB9 um, when you're just looking at the quarterback position, but I think he would go uh, you know, 30 picks earlier in, in most uh, regular drafts. Um, he's a, he's one of those guys who in these drafts, uh, it, Baker's my number one quarterback target. I will admit that. I will reach for him. I uh, When he got taken about 40 picks earlier than Matt Ryan, it was, I think, maybe like three picks before my spot. And had he made it to me, I, that's who I was going. I love the Baker-Odell stack this season. I'm all in on this Cleveland offense. Baker's my QB one, along with Odell being my wide receiver one. So I certainly would have taken him. But if I don't get Baker, I'm not going for Mahomes. I'm not going Rodgers. not going any of those guys. And if I don't get Baker, then the group I'm looking at is really headlined by Matt Ryan. Because, again, another guy like Alshon Jeffrey, no one's going to fight you for Matt Ryan. And he is in just such a bankable offense. Now, we've seen him go back and forth over the last couple of seasons. One great year followed by a bad year followed by another great year. Last year was the great year if you're afraid of the pattern. And that says this is going to be the down season. But you just look at that offense and you, and you look at the that, that way that team's constructed. And it seems awfully hard for Matt Ryan to not give you top 10 quarterback numbers uh, with Julio, with an ascending Calvin Ridley, uh, with a running back situation that is fluid and could put a little bit more of the onus to uh, score points on the passing game than already exists in Atlanta. And with Matt Ryan's track record, I I just don't see a scenario in which he is not a, you know, we're looking back at the end of the season and the worst thing that we got from him was a low end QB one year. It just feels like another zero risk, uh, a pick with a lot of potential for profit. I'm with you there. We got to back up though. You, you have uh, Mayfield is your QB one. QB one fits, man. I am, I am all in on this Cleveland offense and, and it's, it, it's, it's the whole, it, listen, if there was anything across their Jersey other than Cleveland or Browns, we would have no reservations saying that this is the best offense on paper going into the season. Obviously paper doesn't translate to the field automatically, but that skill talent is ridiculous, and then you marry it with the ultra-aggressive uh, uh, mentality of your head coach, your offensive coordinator, and your quarterback. It's just set up for so much fantasy greatness. I love that team. I want a line of investment in that team. And a year ago at this time, probably would look pretty crazy if uh, anyone was saying Patrick Mahomes was going to be the QB1. Look at what he did. I'm not saying Baker Mayfield is Patrick Mahomes, but what I'm saying is that we can see these jumps 
from young guys that we aren't necessarily expecting. I mean, a couple years ago, uh, Carson Wentz was going to be the the QB one before he tore his ACL at the end of the season. So we've had this pattern. It exists. And if you're looking for it again, I I just look at what Baker did last year, everything they put around him, including the coaching staff. And and if anyone's going to be the guy, it's going to be him. Yeah, he is very talented. It's a good way to tap into all the pass catching uh, ability he's got. And um, I, I mean, that roster, you know, you get Odell, Landry, Njoku. He's definitely loaded for bear there. Uh, I've, I've got him QB5. I, I can't quite put him in that very top tier. I can't move him past Mahomes now that Tyreek Hill is not going to be suspended. Uh, but I do think he is, you know, fairly close for me to that Deshaun Watson uh, Aaron Rodgers, Andrew Luck level, and and who knows if the Luck calf thing proves to be uh, something that looks like it's going to keep him out early in the season. I, I might have to move Baker ahead of him, but QB one Beller that is aggressive. I, I have no aggressive. idea. Got to get me right. <laughs> I mean, crazy stuff happens every year. We know the crazy is going to happen. And fantasy people, we love having data to back up every little thing we do, but it's just not always going to be there. Not when we're talking about actual human beings who are in their early 20s, who are still growing physically and mentally. Sometimes a spike's going to come without any uh, historical data to suggest that it is coming. So I think one of the inefficiencies in the game that still exists is that you got to hunt for, all right, I know the crazy is coming. Where is some of the most likely crazy to find? And I think Baker jumping ahead of all those guys to be the QB one is definitely uh, something that is legitimately in that range. Excellent points on having to uh, go out on a limb sometimes. And you are off the chalk there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your tight ends in that league. You were basically dumpster diving at the position, at least relative to everyone else. Uh, your first tight end was Greg Olson at TE17. And then you came back with Chris Herndon at TE19. Uh, as everyone knows by now, Herndon's going to start the season on suspension. But has this been typical for you in early drafts? Have you been bypassing the early round tight ends in most of them? It's another situation like similar to what I just talked about with Baker. Uh, like I said, if Travis Kelsey had made it one more pick and was available for me in the second round, then I'm taking him and not Todd Gurley. So I'll definitely take Kelsey if I can get him in the second round. Um, Hunter Henry is another guy who I will consider because I think that he has to be a big part of that Chargers offense now that he's healthy. And if I miss out on that, those guys, then I'm typically trying to wait at the position. Uh, there, I, I like OJ Howard a lot. I totally get the argument for him exploding this season. There typically seems to be uh, one or two people in all my leagues who like him a little bit more than I do. I'm off Eric Ebron. I think that last year was a lightning in a bottle season from the touchdown uh, perspective, and I think that that's really going to come back to earth this year. The one guy who I do find myself targeting aggressively, assuming I do miss out on guys like Kelsey uh, and, uh, and Hunter Henry, is Delaney Walker. And he was my target where I took Matt Ryan. I thought for sure everyone who was picking before me already had a tight end. I I was so confident. I'm getting Delaney, no question about it. And uh, my new colleague, Brandon Funston, who already had a tight end, he had just taken uh, Mark Andrews the round before, uh, took Delaney Walker one pick before I was going to take him. That's where I took Matt Ryan. I think Delaney is really going to bounce back strong this season. Uh, yeah, he's he's uh, 35 years old. But again, just like we were talking about earlier with Odell's broken leg, it was a broken bone injury last year, and that's healed. And before that, he had never been. This has been one of the most durable players 
in the NFL. So I really don't think there's any injury risk here. Uh, had been a top six tight end uh, on average for uh, each of his previous four seasons. Every season he played with the Titans, even better when Marcus Mariota took over the starting job there. Another guy who you hate to sound like a broken record, but where you're getting him, I see zero risk of him falling short and a lot of potential for him to uh, pay off much higher than what his ADP uh, forces you to take him as. I really think we're looking at a top 10 tight end at like the TE15, TE16 price. And I can understand why you kind of felt surprised about getting sniped on him because he, as an older guy coming off a a significant injury, I I think a lot of people are writing him off and he is – lasting late into drafts and and for me the the concern is more about the offense and you know whether I don't know Marcus Mariota is the goods at quarterback and I've actually made bets on Mariota in a lot of these early drafts but um you know if I'm I'm wrong about that then it's going to be maybe hard for any of these Titans pass catchers to uh hit their marks but I do think Walker is a pretty good chance and I agree with you man he's a pretty good late value uh Beller quick musical digression Let's talk about the Rolling Stones concert earlier this summer. You are the biggest Stones fan I know. They played at Soldier Field in June. How many times have you seen them now? And uh, what do you think of the set list and uh, their performance overall? I've seen them three times now. Um, yeah, I'm I'm 34 years old. So obviously, I mean, their their biggest days were already over by the time I was born, let alone by the time I was listening to music, let alone by the time I was aware of what classic rock is. So uh, I haven't had a, even though I love them as much as I do, I haven't had a ton of chances, but I have seen them uh, ever since I've become a classic rock fan. They've been to Chicago four times and I've seen them three of those times. So I've done pretty well for myself uh, once I knew what the Stones were. And uh, it's, I thought it was great. I mean, I thought that the set list was uh, exact. you know, I would like them to go a little bit deeper, but you got to be realistic. Uh, That's not necessarily what they are there to do. Uh, So I was happy that we got dead flowers that night in Chicago. And from an overall performance standpoint, I mean, this was, this was their first show. It was supposed to be the last show. And then Mick had the heart surgery and this ended up being their first show. So you're talking about a bunch of guys in their mid to late seventies, Mick, the lead singer, coming off heart surgery four months before and just being up there as though he was, you know, 25 years old and the healthiest person who ever lived. So it was incredible. The the, uh, energy was super high, both from the band and the crowd all night. Uh, It was a chillier night than I think any of us would have liked, given that it was uh, late June. But uh, I guess that's sort of the risk you take in the upper Midwest. And it certainly had no damper uh, on the concert whatsoever. Just an excellent, excellent show. And uh, one of my favorite nights of the summer so far. I got to admit, I was surprised by how tight they were. Like I would not have expected that, given the age, the uh, you know, just kind of kicking kicking off the tour, right? That was their first. Was that yeah. their first show? Yeah. So it was. It was the first show, and they were just crisp, man. Yeah, I mean, I guess it helps when you've been playing the same songs for like fifty years, but yeah, uh, I suppose. But still, I mean, the fact that because he had the hearts, or there's no way that they had a ton of time to play together before that show, and just real being realistic about it, and. Again, you would have thought that they'd been, you know, doing two a days for three months before they took the stage that night. I agree, man. Excellent show. One other off-topic summer subject I think I need to bring up with you, Beller, is Cubs Brewers. We're very much on opposite ends of this rivalry. You are one of the biggest Cubs fans I know. I'm True Blue Brew Crew. As you know, I pretty much hate the Cubs, and uh, my scorn for them has only grown while I've lived in the Chicago area, but I know it's different for a lot of Cubs fans, and it was probably just sort of a fun regional rivalry for a few years, um, 
but after the way the Brewers tracked down the Cubs last year and then beat them in the one-game playoff, and with loudmouths like me chirping about the Brewers nonstop, <laughs> is Cubs-Brewers starting to approach Cubs-Cardinals intensity for you, or is Cubs-Cardinals just on an entirely different level? Because, I mean, that rivalry is uh, intense. Yeah, Cubs Cardinals will always be on a different level for me, and it's because I mean you're just you're just brought up in it if you're a Cubs fan or a Cardinals fan. Uh, so that intensity will just it, it, no matter how great the Brewers are, and no matter how many huge games they play against one another, uh, which we've got some more coming this season. The intensity, the feeling, the the feelings of enmity toward the other team and the other fan base. Uh, no offense, I'm sure I've been to St. Louis, beautiful time, beautiful people, but you know how it is with uh, when you're talking about uh, your teams on the field. It's just uh, it is it's just a completely different level that will never uh, be matched by uh, the way that um, that I feel personally about uh, the Brewers and the Brewers fans. Of course, my my feelings toward the Brewers are softened even further by the fact that I. Uh, attended college in your lovely home state for four years and just have so many excellent memories in Wisconsin and Madison and Milwaukee. So uh, I really can't uh, have uh, any real bad feelings about a team that uh, call a, a state that I also love home and uh, have so many friends who are fans of that team as well. Yeah, I suppose if we ply our guests with enough beer and cheese and sausage, uh, there can't be <laughs> yeah, too right. much animosity. Yeah, it's a pretty Wisconsin as a whole and Milwaukee and uh, specifically a pretty easy places to enjoy yourself. <laughs> All right, one more quick non-question, uh, non-fantasy question for you, buddy. We're both, as you mentioned, University of Wisconsin alumni. Last year, major disappointment for uh, Wisconsin football. Badgers were ranked top five entering the season. Had a really disappointing year. Now they're barely ranked inside the top twenty-five, and there's been a lot of turnover in the starting lineups on both sides of the ball. And suddenly the Big Ten's West Division is looking a lot more competitive than it has been lately with uh, Minnesota and Nebraska on the upswing and Northwestern and Iowa still looking tough. What are your expectations for Badger football this year and what are you most excited about? Yeah, it's crazy. We really haven't had to think about any real challenges in the division for a long time. I joke with uh, friends who I grew up with who went to Ohio State and Michigan uh, about how I'd never been more thankful for geography than I was when they divided the Big Ten into East and West because it's been such a cakewalk. Uh, that's obviously not going to be the case this season. I think it's going to be, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's especially for a team, as you mentioned, that had the expectations last year and typically have always had uh, – I don't want to say always having these, you know, Big Ten championship expectations, but there's always a scenario you can paint in your head where if you, you know, a couple things go our way, we could be looking at a Big Ten championship contender. Um, I'm not so sure about that this season. So there's sort of a relief almost of uh, being able to go into a season feeling like it's a free roll, especially with Graham Mertz, whether he starts this year or whether uh, as a young quarterback, for those of you uh, who don't know, a freshman quarterback coming to Madison this season, whether he's the starter this year or it's next year uh, before he really takes the reins of the offense. It's, it's, I sort of feel like playing with house money, uh, especially when you consider that we've got a, a true Heisman favorite in the backfield and Jonathan Taylor. So I'm really looking forward to going into an expectation-free season while also knowing that we've got a pretty good floor as well. It's not like we're going to be talking about a 3-8 and eight team. It's still going to be a good team, and it's going to be a competitive division. So I think that, that uh, the, the fact that it's going to be a competitive division, for me, makes it a little bit more fun when Wisconsin 
doesn't realistically have the national title hopes that it had last year. Then I wanted it to be the easiest division in the world. Let us go undefeated. <laughs> we'll worry about Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game. Now that that's not the case, I'm cool with Nebraska being a legitimate team finally. Minnesota finally getting the axe from us last year, them being a little bit of a challenge. And we'll see what Northwestern and Iowa bring to the table as well. Yeah, and you, uh, you all have to understand that it is really rare for Wisconsin to have a highly coveted recruit playing quarterback like we've made do with some pretty uh you know overachieving quarterbacks sure sure Scott Tolzien yeah guys who just sort of (laughs) exactly guys who you know you wouldn't think of as uh, NFL caliber quarterbacks who maybe kicked around as third quarterbacks for a while in the NFL but uh you know overachieved in college Graham Mertz though is actually a highly coveted recruit maybe not on the Tua or uh, the Lawrence kid at Clemson level, but he could be pretty good. So uh, we're, we're eager to see him. And at the very least, our first, probably our first fun quarterback season since our one glorious year of Russell. That's right. That's right. You know, of, of course, we can't forget the one, uh, you know, postgraduate season we got out of Russ, which was fantastic. Postgraduate. Almost like a free agent, sort of. <laughs> was, man. And all, be- all because no. <laughs> North Carolina State wanted to throw him overboard so they could play Mike Glennon. Yeah. Amazing. They needed to know, baseball or football, Russell? Baseball or football? Which one do you want to do? That's true, man. He did kind of keep him hanging there. Um, All right, right, Beller, back to fantasy. Let's talk about formats for a minute. Now, I know you are an advocate of standard scoring, as am I. What are your issues with PPR, and have you found half-point PPR to be a palatable compromise? Yeah, I'll take that last part first. Definitely. Most of my leagues are half PPR. Some of them are quarter PPR. Um, I've come over to the side that there is some value that that, that uh, reception should be quantified at least a little bit. Um, so I'm totally cool with quarter or half point PPR leagues. I still think that full point PPR is ridiculous. And for me, it's a, it's a very simple explanation. Uh, you'll never convince me that a reception is worth 10 yards. It's bottom line. You should not be able to get points in fantasy for a negative play. Uh, And I know we want to be able to make this as close to tracking real life value as possible, but it's still a game. It's still a game that uh, a bunch of us are watching TV and watching our computers playing. We're not the ones out there. We're not actually playing. So it's not going to be a perfect one for one uh, translation. And I just don't think that you should be able to get points for a play that cost the players real life team yards. And if you catch a pass for a loss of five yards, you're getting, you're still getting half a point in a fantasy league, and I think that's silly. So uh, it's really as simple as that for me. I do think that quarter and half point PPR are the way to go. And, and in fact, in leagues I start from scratch, um, I would prefer a quarter or half point PPR to pure standard. But if you're telling me it's got to be either pure standard or a full point for PPR, then I think pure standard is the way to go. Yeah, I'm with you. And for the standard purists, I think that you know we we do get hung up on this uh, idea that there's no way a reception should be worth 10 yards. But I do also understand the other side of the argument where people are sort of trying to, maybe the point of awarding points for receptions is to dilute the touchdown variance a little bit and the significance of touchdowns, which, you know, are are sort of a, you know, a luck-based event in a lot of ways. Yeah, like often the best players score the most touchdowns, but not always. And certainly there's crazy weekly variance with the touchdown. So I I do get that part of it and maybe half point PPR is the right compromise, but um, you know, mm-hmm. 
this argument, I think, will continue to rage. I feel like we're losing <laughs> our footing a little bit, but, uh, you know, yeah. we'll keep pushing back. I think one day, and that day might already be here, that that half point's going to be the stand, like that, you know, we'll give, it's in a, in a world that seems to uh, be less and less into compromise, we can look to the fantasy football uh, part of it for inspiration and we'll give up our standard and the full PPR zealots will give up their full point and we'll come together at half PPR. And at least in this very, very tiny, mostly insignificant corner of the world, there'll be a little bit of peace and compromise. That's right. And we'll all sing Kumbaya over scoring formats <laughs> in fantasy football. Uh, all right, my man, let's talk about a few more players before I let you run. Antonio Brown, I don't even know where to begin. Let's not waste any time on the blow by blow on his strange odyssey with the Raiders up to this point, but just cut right to the chase. How do you value him for fantasy drafts as of this moment? Like a mid third round pick. I just think that the risk is too much uh, and not the, the, the opportunity cost, right? is just too much. Um, could he still be a top five receiver? Of course he's Antonio Brown, but uh, a, a legitimate quarterback downgrade from Roethlisberger to Derek Carr, a legitimate overall offensive uh, environment uh, downgrade from Pittsburgh to Oakland, uh, lived on touchdowns last year. You talked about touchdowns being uh, quite variable, and he scored 15 of them last year. Not that his other stats were bad, but that was re- really elevated him compared with his other uh, elite receivers. And then when even if even with everything that's happened around him, you still have to take him around the likes of uh, Todd Gurley, Delvin Cook, Keenan Allen, uh, George Kittle, guys like that. So uh, I, I just look at all those guys and I say, Yes, uh, in a perfect world, Antonio Brown would be someone who I rank ahead of them. And yes, he could easily outperform every single one of those guys, not to mention guys who are going comfortably ahead of him. But this is still a point of a draft where I want to lock in high floors and have zero risk associated with my picks. And there's a ton of risk associated with Antonio Brown compared with the guys who are going around him who are, you know, maybe Adam Thielen drops off a little bit, but Adam Thielen's going to be a top, you know, 12 or 13 receiver at worst. Antonio Brown, I think there's a there, there's this floor there that is below that. And I just don't want to get involved with that level of risk unless I'm getting a little bit of a discount for what I'm doing. I'm with you, man. I had him outside the top seven even before the drama began with the Raiders. And now I've dropped him below, let's see, in redraft. Uh, Mike Evans, T.Y. Hilton, I think now I've got him sitting at like wide receiver 11. And I don't know if that's quite far enough, to be honest. I'm, I'm thinking of putting him down around the, you know, Brandon Cooks, Robert Woods level in the mid-teens. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. And uh, one of those things where you're – approach to risk is going to weigh into it. And, uh, you know, mid third round does seem like the point where you maybe start talking about some attractive profit potential. If uh, suddenly things get patched up really quickly and, you know, his foot isn't an issue. And uh, but yeah, right now, I I think it's just um, a little too aggressive to dabble with Antonio in the first two rounds. Um, all right, Beller, you got to uh, you have alluded to this earlier in the show. I know you've been really high on Aaron Jones all off season and have put your money where your mouth is in drafts. Where do you have him ranked, and why are you so bullish? Yeah, this is another one where I'm diverting from the chalk in a big way. Aaron Jones is my running back five, um, and I did take Todd Gurley over him in the flex draft, but that was driven mostly by the fact that I think that I thought I was going to have a good shot at getting Aaron Jones in the third round. Uh, that did not happen. He only went a couple of picks later. Uh, but 
I think Aaron Jones is going to explode this season. I think you look at everything he did in 2017 and in 2018, and you see not only clearly the best back in Green Bay, but a guy who could really thrive in a workhorse true three-down role. The guy does everything. He is an excellent runner. He uh, succeeds in in short yardage and goal line situations. He's a dangerous receiver. Uh, I think that the pass protection issues that were brought up last year were uh, much ado about nothing for the most uh, part. Certainly not uh, not uh, significant enough for uh, the Packers to be uh, interested in taking one of their best playmakers, one of their best athletes off the field and taking that uh, weapon away from Aaron Rodgers. So I just think that Matt LaFleur Obviously, I'm putting a lot of trust in him sight unseen, but I think he understands what he has. I think after he goes through a full summer, a full offseason with Aaron Jones, uh, uh, Jamal Williams and Dexter Williams, he's going to understand what he has in Aaron Jones and that we're going to see him be a 300-plus touchback. And if he is a 300-plus touchback, then all bets are off because I think we could see him uh, putting up you know, almost Alvin Kamara style of numbers uh, in that offense, getting that much work. You certainly do not have to take him with the fifth overall pick. You don't have to take him with the 15th overall pick. So I'm not uh, advocating for that because I think that would be a bad use of your draft day resources. But I just think that everything is lined up for him to be a true star running back one this season if they do commit to him as a workhorse back. And I think that's going to be in the cards for him this year. Yeah, I am with you, man. And we have seen Eddie Lacy, the uh, uh, coveted (laughs) RB1 with Aaron Rodgers. And I mean, Aaron Jones has so much more breakaway potential and just pure speed and explosiveness and uh, utility in the passing game too. So um, vast upside, totally on board with you on that. Uh, Speaking of... NFC North running backs, turning to your hometown team, the Bears. How about David Montgomery, man? The kid looked really good in his first preseason game. Did his performance on Thursday fundamentally change the way you feel about him for fantasy, or were you pretty high on him to begin with? Yeah, I was already pretty high on him to begin with, and uh, I I sort of don't understand why people aren't. I'm not saying you have to have him ranked as a top 20 running back. I have him right around 20. Uh, I'm not saying you need to have him quite that high, Um, and certainly um, reasonable minds can differ on exactly where he lands, but uh, you look at what the Bears did last year in the first year uh, under Matt Nagy with Jordan Howard, uh, as poor of a fit as Jordan Howard was for the team, uh, he still had 250 carries. He still played a ton for this team. He was still trusted in short yardage situations. uh, And this was a 12 and 14. And sure, uh, you got to play the hand you're dealt personnel wise. And uh, maybe, you know, Nagy wouldn't have given his lead back, uh, his de facto lead back 250 carries uh, if it were a different type of player. But David Montgomery is not necessarily a different type of player. And the Bears traded up to get him. Uh, They knew what they were doing full well when they let Jordan Howard go or when they traded him to Philadelphia. They knew what they were doing full well when they then traded up to get David Montgomery. Uh, They know what kind of player he is. uh, And I see a guy who is Jordan Howard with more receiving skills. And if that's the case, then we could be looking at an even larger touch share for Montgomery than what Howard had. They're certainly not going to take too much off of Tariq Cohen's plate. Way too much of a home run hitter, uh, way too much uh, of a, a playmaker for this offense. I mean, I think you look up and down this group and you really look at Tariq and Allen Robinson as the guys who could uh, you know, flip the game with an 80-yard touchdown, and they're really the only two guys on the offense uh, who you're going to see doing that. So I don't think that you know, Tariq's going to you know, recede into the, to the, uh, away from the spotlight at all in this offense, but I just think that we're looking at David Montgomery as a, a 200-ish carry 50-ish target sort of guy in 
what should be an offense that is at least as effective as it was last year, if not more so. Um, so I really think that running back 20 is a fair spot for him uh, and that more people should be getting on board with that assessment because everything the Bears have done uh, from the moment they let Jordan Howard go should be suggesting to you that David Montgomery is going to be in that role and then some this year. Yeah, and don't fade Montgomery based on the belief that Mike Davis is going to have a substantial role. I mean, yes, da- good point. Davis is useful and you know he can sort of back up both the early down Montgomery uh, role and the the Cohen passing down obvious passing down role, but uh, they are not going to hold back Montgomery just based on the Davis presence. And uh, yeah, and let me say something really quick about that too. Uh, you know, Mike Davis, they needed another back. They knew that Jordan Howard was going to be gone, uh, and I mean they they didn't know that David Montgomery was going to be available to them. They didn't know they were going to be able to swing that trade to get David Montgomery when they signed. They signed Mike Davis right at the start of free agency. So we're talking what like seven weeks before the draft, something like that. Uh, they had to lock up a back, and then a better opportunity presented itself in the draft. I think it's going to be uh, the Montgomery and Tariq show with D- Davis mixing in a little bit and really being uh, an injury uh, insurance policy more than anything else. Yep, absolutely. And uh, just really encouraging how smooth Montgomery looked in the passing game as a pass catcher. I mean, that that just looked uh, you know so natural for him. So, Beller, two last guys I want to ask you about, and then we can – I know we can sort of package these guys together, Joe Mixon and Josh Jacobs. One of the last things you wrote for SI.com was an article on the six guys you like less than consensus, and Mixon and Jacobs both made the list. Why are you lower on these two than most? If I'm taking a guy as early as I got to take these two, and especially Mixon, I either need to love the player or love the offense. Uh, Ideally, it's both, (laughs) but I have to love at least one of those. Uh, and I do not feel that way uh, about uh, Mixon or Jacobs or Cincinnati or Oakland. I think there is a ton of risk associated with Joe Mixon. Uh, Josh Jacobs has got a you know he's got a modest enough ADP that I don't think you're crazy if you're taking him there. But I think there is a ton of risk associated with Mixon, especially after this AJ Green injury. I mean, this could be a very bad team. And they had offensive line issues last year, and those do not seem to be going away. They used uh, their first-round pick on Jonah Williams, and he is already out for the season. Uh, I mean, so that's just going to be a huge issue. And, I mean, would you be surprised if uh, they you know, we, we look up in the, the end of October and they're like 1-6 and six, and they're playing from behind every single game? I mean, so much running back scoring that we – not necessarily, I don't want to say forget about, but there's so much of it that almost gets overlooked where, uh, you know, they're tacking on like 37 yards rushing uh, while holding a lead in the fourth quarter without even scoring a touchdown. But, you know, that's a, we're talking about three and a half points or something like that. And I just don't think those opportunities are going to be available to Joe Mixon much, if at all. So I think there's just so much risk associated with him, especially when you consider that he's regularly going ahead of guys like uh, James Conner or Mike Evans or Travis Kelsey or, or Todd Gurley. And I just can't get on board with that at all, considering the fact that I think we could be running into a situation like we did with David Johnson last year, where it's just a slog every single week, except then on top of that, Mixon isn't the player that David Johnson is, isn't nearly the receiver that David Johnson is. And it just gets really ugly for him really fast. If he were going 15 picks later on average, then sure, I could get on board. But uh, we're talking about a guy who's you know off the board, but then the first 15 picks, and I just cannot square myself with that whatsoever. That's fair. Uh, what about Jacobs? Just the, the relative, uh, I don't know, the fact that he's sort of unproven and has never really been a workhorse before. Is that a big part of it? 
uh, again, I'm a little softer on Jacobs than I am on Mixon, but it's mostly because of the ADP. What concerns me mo- mostly about Jacobs is some real risk with that offense uh, not being anywhere near as good, especially if we don't know what the deal is with Antonio Brown. Uh, and the fact that I really like Jalen Richard, and I don't think Oakland can afford to go away from him uh, as a real receiving option in this offense. So I think that the receiving upside for Josh Jacobs is pretty limited. I think we're going to see Richard back in that role last year where he was – I want to say like fifth or sixth among running backs and targets. And like the guys ahead of him were Saquon and Christian McCaffrey and Alvin Kamara. I mean, once you started to get, he was the top of the receiving specialists with Tariq Cohen. And we don't talk about him nearly the way we talk about Tariq Cohen. Uh, but you know, Jalen Richard had 600 yards receiving last year on 80 something targets and somehow didn't score a receiving touchdown, which is such a fluke. So I think we're going to see him really hold on to that receiving role. And you couple that with some risks with the Oakland offense and with just some uh, associated risks of Josh Jacobs being a rookie. And I don't think the upside is nearly uh, as high as most people do. Good points. And uh, yeah, Jalen Richard, very underrated third down back, although I recently found out he is an anti-vaxxer. So uh, get your head together, Jalen. Yeah, he's <laughs> as one of my uh, most targeted, most owned players. I was very sad about that. I'm going to have to hit him up in the virtual locker room and uh, maybe have a chat with him. No about kidding, man. Always tough to find <laughs> out that one of your, you know, a guy you like is uh, taking some foolish point on a social issue. All right, my friend, uh, I know I have to let you go so you can go work on your pentathlon strategy. Before you go, Beller, please tell everyone where they can find you. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at M Beller. It's B-E-L-L-E-R. And please check us out at The Athletic. We've got a ton of new podcasts uh, already up and running for you. And once the regular season starts, we'll be, be debuting a few more as well. So check us out there. We'd love to have you over there. Thanks for coming on, Beller. Talk soon, buddy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Fitz. Go Cubs. All right, people. That's going to do it for the show this week. Thank you so much for being here and lending me your ear. Let me once again thank this week's guest, Michael Beller of The Athletic. Find him on Twitter at mbeller. Thank you to my ever-helpful producer, Colm Kelly. Find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. And be sure to check out his podcast on rotoviz.com. It's called Rotoviz Overtime, and he co-hosts it along with Sean Siegel. It's well worth your time. Special thanks to my friend and colleague, Melissa Jacobs. Be sure to check out thefootballgirl.com for all sorts of great content. Give Melissa's podcast a listen. It's simply called The Football Girl Podcast, and Melissa always gets some fabulous guests for that one. And go find Melissa on Twitter at The Football Girl. And finally, thank you to International Jet Set for the music. Hey, you guys are awesome. Be sure to stop by again next week. And I am going to be throwing in a bonus show over the next two weeks because I have a couple of very special guests lined up. And I want you to be able to draw on their wisdom in time for your draft. So check back next week. And until then, my friends, all the best. Talk to you again soon. Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700.